Our scripture reading this morning is from chapter 11 of the book of 2 Kings. That's uh, 2 Kings chapter 11. We're doing a survey uh, this winter of the more than 300 years between the death of King Solomon, 930 B.C., thereabouts, uh, until the final conquest of Jerusalem uh, by Babylon in about 586 B.C. Now remember, after the death of King Solomon, the great wise King Solomon, the kingdom split north and south, and in the north... You had most of the tribes united in what is often referred to as the kingdom of Israel and their capital was in a city called Samaria. And in the south, the tribes of Benjamin and Judah that remained were united in a kingdom there often referred to as the kingdom of Judah, their capital remaining in the city of of Jerusalem. And last week I gave you a little cheat sheet uh, that, uh, that listed front and back the kings of Judah and the kings of of Israel. There's still a couple of copies on the table uh, in the back if you'd like. And we talked last week about a, uh, an incident in 1 Kings chapter 22 uh, where those two sides of the page, if you will, intersected. You had both a, uh, a king of the north and a king of the south interacting with one another. And that's the, uh, the, the account of King Ahab uh, seeking out the help, the uh, political, the military alliance of King Jehoshaphat in Judah. King Ahab in Israel in the north uh, seeking out the evil King Ahab, seeking out the help of good King Jehoshaphat in, in Judah. That was 1 Kings chapter 22. And if you remember that, then you're saying, okay, wait a minute. So last week we were at the end of 1 Kings, 1 Kings 22, and now this week we're in 2 Kings chapter 11. We just skipped 10 chapters of, of 2 Kings. And yes, that's, that's true, we did. But in reality, it's not, it's not actually all that much time that has gone by in those first 10 chapters of, uh, of 2 Kings. What we're skipping mainly in those chapters is a lot of the details of the, the life and the ministry of two prophets in the history of Israel, the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha. Now, Elijah and Elisha, they're hugely important, and I'd love to do a sermon series at some point on their ministry specifically. But our goal this winter uh, is to survey the political history of this of this era of the kings. And so what we're doing is we're just hitting some representative highlights along the way so you, you can see the, the broad sweep and the trajectory of the political history of, of Israel and Judah, which when I say the highlights, that might seem a little ironic because the story that we're about to read is relatively obscure in the sense that I'd, I'd really be surprised if, if, if more than just a handful of folks actually remember a lot of the details of this. Or if you remember it, you, it'll only be after reading, you're like, oh yeah, that's right, I had, I had forgotten about that. Which is a real shame that we forget about this story because th- this is an awesome story from, from history. This is like a Hollywood-level story. Now, I do recognize that keeping the, uh, the characters straight in a story like this can sometimes be a little bit of a challenge, which is why I include in the bulletin another cheat sheet, uh, a cast of characters. This is kind of like your, your, your playbill uh, if, if you're a theater person, your, you know, your, your program if you're a sport. This is your scorecard uh, to kind of keep track of like, you know, so you're looking, you're straining like, oh, who's on second base now? Who's playing second? All right, this will help you keep it straight. Right, can't tell the players without a scorecard. Got a little diagram at the, at the bottom there. So as we're going through and as we're reading all these names, which can kind of just jumble sometimes in your head, and you're like, you can go back and say, all right, now who is that person again? You can go back and you can say, oh, okay, all right, I, I, I remember now. All right, so that's 2 Kings chapter 11, page 402, if you want to look at the, uh, the blue Bibles and the chair racks. Um, and I'm going I'm to encourage you, again, this is a relatively long account. I want you to focus, and I want you to be able to keep the cheat sheet next to you if you want to be able to go back and, 
uh, and forth as I read this. But let's focus on, on this, uh, this chapter as I read it. And when I'm finished, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. All right, ready? This is 2 Kings chapter 11. going to start at verse 1. Now, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah, so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah reigned over the land. But in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Karites and of the guards and had them come to him in the house of the Lord. And he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord. And he showed them the king's son and he commanded them, this is the thing that you shall do. One third of you, those who come off duty on the Sabbath and guard the king's house, another third being at the gate sewer and the third, a third at the gate behind the guards shall guard the palace. Right? One third shall guard the palace. And the two divisions of you which come on duty in force on the Sabbath and guard the house of the Lord on behalf of the king shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand. And whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death. Be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. The captains did, according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave to the captains the spears and shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. And the guards stood, every man with his weapons in hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar and the house on behalf of the king. And he brought out, of the king's, out, brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony and they proclaimed him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. When Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she went into the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar, according to the custom. And the captains and the trumpeters beside the king. And all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! Then Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains who were set over the army, bring her out between the ranks and put to death with the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest said, let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her and she went through the horse's entrance to the king's house and there she was put to death. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people and also between the king and the people. Then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images they broke in pieces, and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest posted watchmen over the house of the Lord, and he took the captains, the Karaites, the guards, and all the people of the land. And they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, marching through the gate of the guards to the king's house, and he took his seat on the throne of the kings. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. This is the word of the Lord. So it's, um, it's probably a common observation you could make about a lot of different movies. But I remember having the thought 
uh, come to mind distinctly after uh, one of the Mission Impossible movies that I watched. Now, if you know uh, the Mission Impossible movies, you know that in a Mission Impossible movie, the world is always just about six seconds from complete destruction. That's how it goes. And then it's saved. Right? That's how it works. world is within six seconds of complete destruction, and then it's saved. And in this movie that, that, that came to mind, after global disaster is diverted, because global disaster is always averted, the closing scene is in a park on a beautiful day, and the families are having picnics, and the kids are flying kites, and everything just seems to be, seems to be perfect. And the hero is just, is just sitting there. He's sitting there, and he's smiling to himself because he knows, he knows how close every one of these people was to complete disaster. And here's the thing, they don't. They have no idea. They have no idea what's happened in the previous two hours and nine minutes or whatever, right? They, they have no idea how close the world was to complete disaster. Our relative ignorance of this story in the Bible is kind of like that. We don't remember a lot of the details. In most cases, Christians don't even know that this happened. We blissfully live in the joy of the happy ending, and yet all the while we have no idea how close, humanly speaking, we have been to complete disaster. This is, an, this is an absolutely fascinating story. It's hugely dramatic, if you think about it. Danger, intrigue, right? There is a political thriller screenplay that is just absolutely waiting to be written here. Kids, maybe, maybe this is something you could do, right? Start off storyboarding it in like comic book format or whatever and then, and then turn it into a, into a, a, into a movie, right? You can, and there's lots of different ways you can kind of divide up the story. I propose in the bulletin four sections that we can kind of walk through here. Four sections. First, protecting the king, that's verses one to three. Uh, second, revealing the king, that's four to twelve installing the king 13 to 19 and then the reign of the king the ultimate reign of the king verses 20 and and 21 right, and I just want to walk through the the story because this is this is an awesome story that we should know all right start with the first the first section protecting the king all right pull out your playbill pull out the lineup card right keep it in front of you you can follow follow along here because it's important right okay King Ahaziah of Judah dies that's where we start King Ahaziah now, he's killed, actually, by a guy named Jehu, who's, who's cleaning house. He's killing people in the north, in Israel, too. He's just killing people. But the point at the start of this story is that the king of Judah, Ahaziah, Ahaziah is dead. And he hadn't actually been king for, for all that long, only about a year or so he had been, been king. And, and what you have is dead king Ahaziah's mother, whose name is Athaliah, and, and who had apparently been taking notes on how to be an evil queen from her mother Jezebel. Right? Ahaziah's mother, Athaliah, sees an opportunity to take control of Judah. Son's dead, no one's on the throne, and, and, and she's like, this is my chance. Now she's not, and this is, this is important, this is very important, she's not a native Judean. She is not from the tribe of, of Judah. She's a daughter of King Ahab and Jezebel in Israel. She got to Judah because she married into the family of Judah when King Jehoshaphat and King Ahab were forming alliances. Remember that last week? That's where we were last week. King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat were making alliances. And I said last week that there was something a little bit commendable about what Jehoshaphat was doing and trying to relate to the, to the north, maybe kind of you know, be a positive influence on evil King Ahab and stuff. And after all, the tribes were related and, and it wasn't all that long when they were one united kingdom and maybe Jehoshaphat was, he was doing a good thing and stuff. And, and there might have been some positive motivations in what he was doing, but this is where things went way wrong. Because he kind of continued down the path and made a political alliance. He married his son, 
to Ahab's daughter. And this is what results. Athaliah is now in Judah. Her son dies, who was a rightful heir of the throne. And who's left to pick up the pieces but this non-Judean, not from the line of Judah, woman, Athaliah, this woman who now becomes queen. So, 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 so here we have, here we have this, um, this dilemma. Now, on the one hand, this is common political stuff, right? This is, uh, this is something that happens all the time, what, what, what Athaliah does here. Right? There, there is the, the, the technicality of other heirs. Her son's dead, but there were grandsons that were still alive. They were younger. They would have a claim to the throne, but it's not a problem that anything, Athaliah figures, not, not a problem that a little murder won't solve. And so she goes about, like, okay, let's kill the heirs. And then I'll be the only one who's able to, to keep control of the throne. Now, this is probably, uh, this, is, this is common kind of stuff in the ancient world, right? I mean, you think being canceled today is like, you know, finding yourself on the wrong side of the, uh, of the power is, a, is, a, is an issue, right? Being canceled then means you were killed, and that's what she was doing. So I'm going to cancel the heirs. We're going we're gonna to get rid of them. Now, this part actually is probably why the story doesn't make it into most of the children's Bibles. Because grandma is gone mad and she's killing the grandsons. Now on the one hand, like I said, this is, this is common political stuff. But on the other hand, this, this is where the point in the story where we need to realize the stakes. How close, humanly speaking, we are at this moment to disaster. Because remember, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised King David that his family line would always have a descendant on the throne. Ultimately, a messianic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a promise that the eternal king would come from the line of David. That's the reason why after the United, after the United Kingdom implodes and Solomon's dead, that's why God preserves the tribe of Judah and preserves the tribe of Judah and its rule in the city of Jerusalem to be faithful to the promise that had been made to David. But now, you need to understand this, we're on the brink of disaster. Athaliah is not from the line of Judah and she is making herself queen and she's killing off all the legitimate heirs who were from the line of Judah. And if she were to be successful... The kingly line of David would end right here. The Messiah wouldn't come from David. God's promise of salvation would be, would be unkept. Your sins would not be forgiven and you would have no hope. That's ultimately what's at stake here. I just saw a, um, a preview for a new uh, Mark Wahlberg movie. Uh, based on a true story, I think, uh, about a, a dog who accompanies this extreme adventure racer, extreme adventure racing, it's a thing, you know, through the forests and the woods and swimming, boating and mountain climbing and you got so long to get from point A to point B. Well, at one point, the dog's with them and they're racing through the night in this mountain forest and suddenly the dog turns and stops and uh, stops them and starts growling at the, at the racers, won't let them advance, won't let them go, and he snarls, he snaps, and they, and they don't get it until the racers just look on the other side of the dog through the darkness, and they realize that just on the other side of the dog, just two steps ahead, is a cliff. And if they had gone just two steps further, they would have plunged off the edge of the, the cliff. And that's where we are here in covenantal history, at the edge of a cliff. And if we don't slow down and pay attention, we have no idea how close we've gotten to the edge. Now, of course, I say that we're close to disaster, humanly speaking, because we know the character of God. 
we know the power of God. We know that he doesn't make promises that he is either unwilling or unable to keep, right? But that doesn't drain the, the drama out of the story, right? The drama of a Mission Impossible movie doesn't come from wondering if the world is going to really be saved from disaster, right? We know it will be because there's another movie. We know it's going to be saved. The drama comes in discovering how it's going to happen. And that's where the drama is here, right? God could intervene in lots of different ways here, right? To, to, to keep Israel, to keep, to keep his people from the, from the cliff. He could send down the angel armies, right? I'm sure they were ready to deploy forward at a moment's notice. He said, go down, take care of business. And they would go, right? Scholar uh, Dale Ralph Davis, um, whose commentaries, by the way, are absolutely hilarious. I mean, he's not only a first-rate scholar, he is hilarious. And he said, he said look, you know, he could have had evil queen grandma, have her hiatal kind of, you know, work its way up. She could have choked on her granola cereal and fallen face flat in her breakfast. God could have done that, but he doesn't, right? There's no dramatic whack of, of Queen Athaliah. There's no chariot charge from heaven. Instead, what he does is he sends a woman who herself is of a royal line and who, along with another woman unnamed in the story, step forward at great personal risk to their own lives, right? Go back to the cast of characters, right? This is Jehoshaphat. She sees what's going on and she grabs Joash, the infant son of Ahaziah, the rightful son, the rightful heir, the only one left of Judah and David. And it must have happened quickly because all of Joash's brothers, they're being killed by evil grandma queen. And certainly they're coming for Joash too, right? But Jehoshaphat, this woman who was the wife of the chief priest, grabs Joash and his nurse, the nanny, and she hides them in a bedroom, it says in verse now that's literally a a room for bedding that's what that's what the word means right Jehoshaphat takes the baby heir to the throne and his nanny and sticks them in a linen closet and saves them and then verse three keeps them hidden in the temple out of the knowledge of evil queen grandma and assumes rule of the land as evil queen grandma assumes rule of the land right now before leaving this, this this section can we just can we just stop and praise God for brave women right we go over this in our new members class right but this church was organized in August 1954 right this year will be our 70th birthday right but as some of you know in 1965 about just 11 years in the pastor of Calvary resigned and they couldn't find a new pastor and the New Jersey Presbytery actually voted to close the church Calvary if you will was at the edge of the at the edge of the cliff and what did God do? Did he send in an army of men? No, he raised up three women from that small church. You should know their names, right? Three women, Dorothy Regenthal, Edith Eppel, and Julia Keck. Three women. And those woman, women would not let go. They weren't disrespectful. They weren't rude. But they prayed and they petitioned, and for nine months they pleaded with the presbytery and with the denomination to continue the search. And in September 1966, Robert Craggs was called as the pastor of Calvary, and Calvary skirted the edge of the, the cliff. And most of, most of you probably don't know how close we got to falling off, if not for those three godly, brave women. That's how God works. It's not always the chariots. He could. Sometimes he just sends brave women 
to keep his church from the edge of the cliff. Now keep moving. That's only the first part of the story, protecting the king. We'll accelerate a bit here, but let's look at part two, revealing the king. Look at verse four. In the seventh year, so six years now have gone by. Infant Joash became toddler Joash and now boy Joash. And he's been hiding for six years. In the temple, out of the sight of evil Queen Grandma, who obviously is still in the dark as to all of this that's going on. She's, this is a very carefully guarded secret. But one of the guys who knows, who had to have been in on it, is Jehoiada. We're introduced to him to, in verse 4, right? He's the chief priest. So he'd have the ability to help pull off the deception in the, in the temple. And it doesn't tell us here, but you learn it in 2 Chronicles chapter 22. I already made reference to it. Jehoiada is Jehoshaphat's husband. So he's probably been in on the secret from the beginning. Now he doesn't get credit for the original hiding. Jehoshaphat gets the credit for that. But Jehoiada now, in his role as chief priest, he, he takes charge of the situation, right? It, what we have now, right, and, that, and if you look at, the, um, if you look at the, the, the order of cast of characters there, Jehoiada, it should have an A in it, but Jehoiada, right, right, Jehoiada decides it's time to make a move. And he enlists the help of the royal guard in the in the temple. The Karaites, verse 4, they were a part of the royal bodyguard, and there were other elements of the temple guard. These were not regular army soldiers. These were vetted, trusted uh, men, but still, I'm sure almost all of them up to this point were probably unaware of who had been hiding in their midst for the last six years. It would have had to have been kept that closely guarded. But now Jehoiada, he reads them in. He swears them on an oath to, uh, to secrecy, and he lays out a plan for how the boy king is going to be revealed and then installed as, the, as, as the, rightful, the rightful king. Now, I don't have time to go into all the details of the strategy. It's actually fascinating when you kind of dig into some of what's being said here. But basically, Jehoiada divides the guards into three groups, and he places them strategically around the royal palace and in other important places. He wanted to protect the temple. He wanted to, there was a, a false place of worship for the worship of Baal that was, uh, that was in the city. Um, and he placed guards kind of in between that and the temple so that, uh, so that, that, that they couldn't come and interfere with, with what was going on. It was all very strategic, tactically brilliant, right? He, he plans the action, did you see this? For the shift change on the Sabbath, right? The shift guards are coming off duty at the same time as the next shift of guards is coming on duty, right? Which does what, right? What does that do? It maximizes the number of guards, right? Everyone at this point, whether you're coming off duty or coming on duty, they're all geared up and ready to go. And then at that moment, they're to just report to their pre-assigned positions. Tactically brilliant. Now, it's also theologically brilliant. And this is even more significant, really, right? It is timed for the Sabbath, the seventh day, in the seventh year. What does that tell you? Why is this happening now? Well, it's not happening because, well, you know, boys, when they're, when they're seven... So when they reach the age of seven, they're suddenly wise, mature enough to be able to rule their own kingdom, said no mother of a seven-year-old boy ever. No, the seven is significant because it's patterned on God's creation. It's the, it's the number of completion. And it means that now, in the seventh year, the waiting is over, the hiding is over, the time of completion is here. It's the appointed time for the true and rightful king to be revealed. And do you see that this, this, this action, this return of the rightful king, is primarily then a theological move and not a political move. Jehoiada is, is the chief priest. He's not a political guy. 
His job as chief priest is mediating the covenant relationship between God and the people. That's his job. And you see, that's exactly what he does. When the temple is secure, when the strategic tactical stuff is all taken care of, he brings out Joash, the king's son, the, the rightful king, verse 12, and they place the crown on him and they give him, what is, what's it say? The testimony. Which refers, in some sense, broadly to the entire law of God, but narrowly is probably a reference specifically to Deuteronomy 17, which is where God lays out the relationship between himself, the Lord, and the king and the people and says, look, at some point you're going to have a king and this is how the relationship is to work. Jehoiada is doing this right. You see, this isn't just a political move to return, you know, the rightful biological heir of David to the throne, right? He's not just saying like, I, you know, this is my political guy. I'm going to install him. No, this is a, this is a turning back to the God of the covenant. That's what's being orchestrated here. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Yahweh Lord of the burning bush, the God who rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, the God who gave his people the promised land, who made the promise of Messiah to Joash's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, David. And Jehoiada has everyone participate in this. He gets everyone involved. All the parties are there, the religious leaders, Right? you got the priests, the military leaders, you got the guards, you got the, the people, the crowds obviously invited into the temple. Right? They're shouting, long live the king. Here he is, revealed at last. Joash, the rightful king, who everyone thought was dead, is alive. Now let's finish the story. Section 3, verses 13 and 19. Start with verse 13. Look at this. <clears throat> this is ironically funny. Um, in runs, at this point, Athaliah, my evil queen grandma. Here she comes, and she looks around, and she sees all the people, and she sees the priests, and she sees the guards, and she sees this boy standing by the pillar, right, which is significant, right? and she gets that it's significant. It's according to the custom, it says, right, where he was standing, the whole way in which things were arranged, right? It means that he, he's wearing the crown. And she shouts, this is rich, treason. How's that for arrogance, right? The one who stole the throne and tried to kill all the grandsons is complaining of treason. She's saying, I demand justice here, which is a dangerous thing for the guilty to demand. And Jehoiada basically agrees, all right, okay, all right, let's do it, right? Let's have a trial for treason. It doesn't take a lot of deliberation. Athaliah is guilty. Sentence is pronounced. In verse 16, it's, it's carried out. Right? May have been delayed for evil queen grandma, but justice was not ultimately denied. And then, verses 17 to 21, they take Joash and the chief priest formally reinstates the covenant relationship between God and the king and the people. Those were the parties that were always involved. And Joash formally enters the palace and takes his seat on the throne of the the kings the rightful king now reigns and that's the and that's the last thing that you see the last section that's what you see in verses 20 to 21 now it's just a start really joash is is still a boy he's got a lot to learn and and in chapter 12 we'll get into those details if you want to continue reading and kind of see how it goes jehoiada the priest he would he would mentor him he would instruct him he would grow into a into a good king not a perfect king but a king who would rule wisely on the throne of his, his father David, right? That's the, that's the story. 
A story of a rightful king hidden but then revealed to take his rightful place and save his people from near disaster. A story you might not have ever heard of before. Or have you? I mean, actually, if you think about it, and you don't have to think that hard, that storyline is not all that uncommon in literature. A king hidden from obscurity because the evil enemies of good have taken over the land and then revealed at just the right time, right? If you're familiar with the, the, the Narnia Chronicles, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's, this is boy king Peter who appears in line with an ancient promise to assume the rule of Narnia and defeat the evil witch, right? Also from the Chronicles of Narnia, it's like Prince Caspian who, who goes into goes into hiding from a murderer usurper of the throne only to come back at exactly the right time and save the, the land from disaster. Right. King Arthur, right, mentored and protected by a priest like Merlin before being revealed as the true once and future king. It's Aragorn from Lord of the Rings, right? Where's the king? The land's in danger. Everything's about to fall. Where is the king? And then he's revealed. It's Simba in The Lion King. Right? Remember? The boy lion escaping a murderous relative only to return and, and rescue the kingdom? It's even Luke Skywalker, son of royalty, hidden at birth from those who wanted to kill him only to return at the right time and save the universe. It's everywhere. It's a universal story. You know why? Because it's God's story. It's the myth that points to the to the truth it's the shadow that points to the object it's the mirror that reflects reality because this story is the story of the bible this story is the story of jesus jesus was born into the line of a king and he was recognized at the outset as a king but his life was threatened because of it from the very beginning when an evil king herod went on a rampage to eliminate anyone who might possibly challenge his rule and he murdered every boy in bethlehem up to the age of two but God used ordinary people, not chariots from heaven, ordinary people, a faithful husband and a brave mother to hide Jesus in Egypt. And for more than 30 years, Jesus remained in obscurity. All right, the people probably wondering what had ever happened to the promises of God. And then at the perfect time, he was revealed for who he was. Right? In, in, in a sense, in covenantal ceremony, the anointing of the Holy Spirit at his baptism, descending like a dove, and God the Father declaring, this is my son. The same declaration made by Peter. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's revealed at the exact right moment. And Jesus is the king of the covenant. Right? The final fulfillment of God's promise to his to his people, the king whom the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 17, the, the king to whom all that just pointed. And he came to fight the Lord's battle against sin and idol worship, which is exactly what Joash does, to execute final, ultimate justice against the treason that is committed against God. Right? That's the story. It's why it resonates. It's why people, even secular people, when they go and they try to write a good story, why they go back to it? Because it resonates, because it rings true. Because it connects with the human heart. Now, lest you grow too confident too quickly, remember who the Bible says you are at your core in this story. In our fallen sinful condition, I mean. In our fallen sinful condition, in this story, as you kind of identify with a character, we are all evil Queen Grandma here. What? How dare you say that? Right? That's not my character in the story. I want to be brave women Jehoshaphat. That's who I want to be in the story. 
I want to be honorable priest Jehoiada. I want to at least want to be faithful temple guard. Can I at least be faithful temple guard? But the one person I don't want to be in the story is evil queen grandma. Well, I don't want to be her either. And I don't want you to be. But the only way to realize that at any other point in our lives where we get to play any other role in the story is to realize that first we start as this role in the story. As a traitor to God's plan and God's people. That our sin is our effort to take and to maintain the rule of our kingdom at any cost. Whatever might be necessary to keep ourselves on the throne. And if we are not rescued from that path, then we will end up like evil Queen Grandma. And our ironic and pathetic cries in the temple for fairness and for justice will only serve to condemn us to the same fate as Athaliah. All right, but see, that's exactly, at that point, that's exactly where the good news and the happy ending of the story come in. Right? Jesus came out of obscurity to assume his rightful throne and to bring his kingdom rule, but he did it first by dying for the rebels and, and, and for the traitors. That's what he came to do. All right, just, just think about it when we, when we went through the story. Right? When Joash was revealed as the rightful king, right, he received the approval and the acceptance of the religious leaders, the military leaders, and the people. Right? That's what he got. Here's the rightful king presented. And what was the reaction? Right? The approval of, the, of, the, of the, the military leaders, of the religious leaders, and the people. But do you know, as Jesus was revealed the first time, as the rightful king, he was rejected by those very same groups. The religious leaders cried blasphemy, and the military leaders cried treason, and the crowds cried, crucify him. And they did. They crucified him, bearing the wrath of God's justice. And so, at that moment, at that crucial moment, at the real cliff of history, Jesus assumes the role of Queen Grandma. He is executed and bears the wrath of God's justice. Not for his blasphemy, not for his treason, for ours. And then, just when everyone thought he was dead, he reassumes the role of Joash and he comes out of the shadow and the king, who everyone thought was dead, is alive. He's risen to rule and to reign and to assume his rightful place on the throne. Now, of course, we still, in some sense, live in a period of waiting where it seems like to many, to most, maybe in this world, that there is no rightful king who will come again. But he will. He's promised that he will. And we know the end of the story. That's what gets you through the stress of a Mission Impossible movie, right? The world may, at many points, twists and plot turns and this and that, might seem like it's on the, on the brink. You may feel that about the world right now, Right? How's this going to happen? It seems like we're on the edge of the, the cliff, but we need to know, right? Just like, if you, just like if you're watching Mission Impossible 2, you know it's not over because the, heroes, the hero doesn't die. We need to know that the hero of the story, he didn't die. He doesn't die. That's how we can get through the stress of the plot turns and the twists and wonder how is God going to bring resolution out of all of this because we know that the hero doesn't die. The twists and the plot turns of our lives, they seem treacherous, like at any moment we might fall off the cliff. But see, we know the end. 
because we know the hero that doesn't die. And we know he's coming back. Let's pray. Father, thank you for writing the story, for writing us into it, and for using your son as the hero who saves us, who enables us to be able to play the role of faithful men and women in your church, to be able to serve you because our sin and our rebellion and our treason has been forgiven by the true and the ultimate hero. God, we pray that we would put our trust and our faith in that hero, Jesus, and that we would see him as orchestrating every detail of our lives and bringing it all to a glorious end under your perfect rule and reign. And We pray these things in his name. Amen.